Don't touch that dial. You're tuned in to the Dread Podcast Network. Not from Nice Guy Productions overlooking the glamorous San Fernando Valley, but rather live from Motor City Legacy in Detroit, Michigan. I'm Mick Garris, and this is the Fun Size Postmortem AMA, where you can ask me anything. Normally, producer Joe Russo would be here with me to ask the questions that you are sent, submitting to us, but here we are in the capable hands of Adam DeFilippi, who is going to ask your questions. So, Adam, thank you for having me here in uh, L- Motor City Legacy. Well, thank you for having me. I mean, I, I heard that Pizza Joe is filled with too much pizza, and that's the reason <laughs> I had to be here. I, guess. I don't little... think he would say there's ever too much pizza. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> well, thank you for being here. It means so much to all of us, the people running us running the show and the fans. Everybody's been very happy to hear you were coming. Very excited. Well, it's really great to be here. I've never been to Detroit before, and I took a little foot uh, tour uh, this afternoon, and it was really impressive. I thought it was amazing. The architecture here is phenomenal. What did you uh, What did you check out? We saw the Fisher Building. Uh, we went to the Fox Theater, and just most of the others were from the outside, and just just lots of impressive architecture from over the years. Yeah. Okay. So uh, yeah, we're doing this. Uh, we're doing the ask, make anything. Uh, we uh, gathered some questions on all the social media. We got some good ones. Uh, you ready to go? You bet. I'm gonna one day have to change it to ask, make almost anything. A M A A. Yeah, yeah, First question we got is uh, from Paul Cornelius. Uh, what were some of the challenges that were hardest to overcome on the Master of Horror series that you might not have seen coming in the planning stages? Um, various ones. Um, probably the most complicated were the ones that we did in Japan um, because we had a pretty straightforward system of doing 10 days of shooting each episode on stages and on location in Vancouver. and. So when we did the ones in Japan, we kind of, I went over there to be there for the production to make sure everything ran right. The first one that Takashi Miike directed was, you know, they were both shot in English, but only the two lead actors spoke English and everyone else learned their lines phonetically. And it, that was kind of a nightmare, but it ended up working out really well. And, and Mike himself doesn't speak English. So that made it even more complicated and more of a reason for me to uh, have an enjoyable trip to uh, Japan. Uh, and there were other things um, because every show had to start when the last one stopped. We're committed to locations and stages and cast members and all these things for very specific dates. So there is no wiggle room. So one of the uh, episodes we shot, we ran out of time on a location and we couldn't go back to the location. So we had to actually build the exterior of somebody's house on the stage because we couldn't go back the next day to shoot any longer. So there were challenges in all of them, but what was great was all of these great filmmakers agreed to the very tight schedule, very tight budgets, but they had creative freedom. And that was the key to making the whole show work and making it so good, which if I may say so myself, (laughs) feeling like a proud papa. But, um, you know, it, they're all challenging because everyone was a brand new movie starting from day one. 
and there were 10 days, start the next one on day 11. <clears throat> so you don't have the same cast in any of them. You don't have the same locations, the same sets. So we had two stages in Vancouver. One of them was always building. One of them was always shooting. So it, it was complicated, but it really worked out for everybody. You know, we, we came up with a show that people really liked, that we could be proud of, and it's always a problem. There's never enough time, there's never enough money, but that's, that goes with the territory. Oh yeah, yeah, it's never completely smooth no. sailing. <clears throat> um, you want smooth sailing, work in an office. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, T. DePero, Mick, can you talk about adaptation from book to screen? What choices you make as a filmmaker with your Stephen King projects? Well, what's great about adaptation with Steve is that, <laughs> yes, I call him Steve. <laughs> is that he knows the difference between books and movies. And people will say to him, and we've talked about this on the show before, um, when people say, what do you think of how they fucked up your book? He said, the book is right here. It hasn't changed a bit. Maybe a shitty movie, but it hasn't changed. Yeah. So the point is, if you're adapting a book, you're making it into a movie, and it's a different vocabulary. It's a different language. It's a different set of tools. and. Richard Matheson told me something, and I repeat this often as well, because it's profound and yet completely simple, that books are internal and movies are external. So if you can find a way to tell a story in the vocabulary of film, that is the challenge. But you don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater. If you're adapting Stephen King, you do it because his stories are so cinematic, and you find a way to make that shine through in the movies or television adaptations. So you're looking for the stories and the characters. And <clears throat> if there are ways to make those characters internal thoughts, external in a cinematic way, rather than just voiceover or a bunch of expository dialogue, that's Which the key. there's a lot with this King <laughs> Believe me, <laughs> there's a lot. And there's a lot in some of the things we've done with yeah, King yeah. as well. But um, that is the key. You're telling a story and you're telling it in visual media rather than telling a story like reading it from a book. So th the difference is just a matter of language. It's just a matter of medium. And as Marshall McLuhan said famously in the 60s, the medium is the massage. And it's all about how you are relating the story and using the t tools that best suit that medium. So, Okay. I like it spooky horror podcast ass. <laughs> Very clever that he submitted it, not, you know, as Stephen something something, the yeah. title of his podcast. Yeah. Uh, nice promotion, yeah. Steve. <laughs> <laughs> what movie from your life shaped your career more than any other? Now, Adam, you and I talked about this beforehand. I wasn't sure if, if, the, uh, if Steve meant a movie that I saw in my life or a movie that I made in my life. So I'm gonna go for the second one, uh, unless everybody here thinks that the first one, I'll go for both. <laughs> Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. Um, <clears throat> actually really was a seminal influence on me, both because of the horror and it is scary and the comedy and it is genuinely funny. But as far as a career move, nothing was better than being hired by Steven Spielberg to write for Amazing Stories. Suddenly, in a hopeful career that had never taken off, I'd never sold a script, I'd, I'd gotten an agent, 
Uh, I'd had people read things and reject them, all that. When Steven Spielberg hired me to write for Amazing Stories, suddenly all of these people who wouldn't even read anything I wrote would offer me jobs sight unseen. They didn't read anything then either, but if you're knighted by King Stephen, suddenly then, okay, you're good enough for Fox or Disney or somebody else. Now they're both the same company. So, um, you know, it's a very glib answer to say Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, but it really was the movie that and Hard Day's Night are the two movies I've seen more than any other in my life. And it was inspirational. I didn't know I could make movies when I saw them originally, but they stuck with me always. And the the ever-grateful, everyday offer from Steven Spielberg to write for him for Amazing Stories opened up every door, and, and I've been able to walk through them ever since. Wow. Uh, Laura Jackson asked, if you could remake any movie ever, which one would it be? I would remake a movie that wasn't great, that had a great thesis, a great idea, a great plot, but was not a classic, you know. I, we didn't remake The Stand, we did, or The Shining. We did it because King did not like the Kubrick adaptation, famously, and King wrote the script himself, and he wanted to do it justice, do his book justice, and tell the story that he had written. So that was not a remake, it was a, a, an alternative telling that was true to the author's intent. But I would always want to choose something that, for a while I was going to do a, a remake of, of an Australian movie called Thirst, which had a great story about, it's a vampire story, but these are vampires who are sort of like celebrities because of their standing in the community. And people are willingly blood cows for them. They give their blood because they want to be a part of the royalty of the vampire society. It's a really good movie. It's not a well-known movie. It was a small independent movie made in Australia. But that idea was great. And Brandon Cronenberg kind of did something like that on his first movie, but I don't know if he was inspired by Thirst or not, where it's people who want to give to celebrities so that they can have some of that stardust rub off on them. But Thirst was a movie, we never got around to making it, but still something, I think the idea is so potent, I'd love to. Oh God. Um, oh, I feel like there's gonna be some hot takes here. Uh oh. Would you, <laughs> uh, this is from Scott. Uh, Scott uh, Wazalewski? I feel like I butchered it, but. Scott W. Scott W, there you go, that's <laughs> nice and smooth. Uh, would you ever want to be involved with another Hocus Pocus project? From the, and also, from the original movie, which character do you most relate to? Oh, I most relate to Billy Butcherson, because <laughs> I feel like The Walking Dead all the time. So, um, <clears throat> I loved being a part of Hocus Pocus, and it has become a part of popular culture since it came out in 1993, so 30 years ago. Um, and it's more popular now than it ever was. Uh, and I'm really proud to have been a part of that. I was not a part of Hocus Pocus 2. And, you know, it's am I, not... Am I allowed to say that that was pretty obvious? <laughs> you can say whatever okay. you like. <laughs> Ask Adam anything. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know, it, it, it was something... 
I've been in that neighborhood, I lived in that house, and I've moved out. And it's 30 years later, and I'm so proud of the work that we all did in creating the original Hocus Pocus and what it eventually turned into. And for me personally, it's Leave Well Enough Alone. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, also from Scott W., can you tell us about the project that you're working on with Clive Barker? <clears throat> I'm actually working on a couple of them. One of them hasn't been announced, and it, it's it's in the maybe phase. The other one was being written for a network that the network is not moving forward with it, but uh, Clive and I wrote a pilot for the Clive Barker's Theater of Blood, an anthology series of all original Clive Barker stories. Uh, not from his previously published work or anything. Uh, and it was all, um, each story was set in a city in the UK and was something that was um, important to his maturation as an artist and as a writer. And they were great stories. The pilot is out of its mind and great. Um, he was really excited about it, is really excited about it. We are talking to other people at other networks right now because unfortunately the circumstances did not allow us to move forward with the original network. But um, it's incredibly exciting. It's incredibly transgressive. It's, it, it's Clive Barker, pure Clive Barker. So many of the adaptations of Clive, they just license the title and they don't have the heart and soul of the stories that he created himself. And if you're not going transgressive, you're not going Clive Barker. So we were going to go there, and we still will if it happens. Okay, great. Uh, this is from Denver Rashan. I have a special place in my heart for sleepwalkers. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> <laughs> Did you know just how bonkers the end re result would be when you were making it? Well, I did read the script, <clears throat> so yeah. Um, I, when I look at it now, I, I realize when you're making a movie, you have the script and you set out to fulfill the best vision possible of that and using these ideas. I look at it now 30 years later, 31 years later this week, um, and I realize I've never seen another movie like this before, even though I was involved in it, and King had written the script. We knew it wasn't going to be up there with the classic adaptations of his novels. It was a, uh, written for the screen. It was never a book before. It was not IP before it became a movie. And it was King doing drive-in theater, basically. You know, um, And this was at a time I learned later during the making of The Stand he told me that he hadn't really respected screenwriting as much as he respected writing the books until The Stand. And he had adapted The Stand himself to the miniseries. And during the shooting of The Stand, he told me that he had developed an appreciation for how the art of screenwriting is every bit as important and valid an art form as fiction. But that said, I knew it was nuts, <laughs> but I didn't realize how unlike everything else it was. I mean, even these days, I, I challenge anybody to tell me a movie that's like Sleepwalkers. You know, if you like Sleepwalkers, you'd like what? <laughs> tell me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, what, 
Oh, this one is very complimentary. You're gonna love it. Uh, being a highly accomplished writer, director, documentarian, interviewer, and more, do you feel that these are different Author. hats? Author. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, I forgot it, yeah. Uh, do you feel that these are different hats that you must wear, or does it all fall under a storyteller moniker? Basically, what do you consider yourself? It's interesting because, uh, you know, the thing I do most often these days is my podcast. So I'm a podcaster in that regard. But that's a hobby. That's something I do because I learn something from everyone. And I'm, I'm talking to people whose work I'm interested in and want to know about. And, you know, directors don't work together. So when you're interviewing directors, it's an entirely different circumstance than being a director myself. Um, but I started as a writer when I was 12 years old. I wrote short stories and, and started writing screenplays in my 20s. And, uh, and I've continued in writing screenplays and writing books and all, all that. But once I started directing, you know, I, I consider myself a hyphenate, a, a screenwriter director more than anything else. I mean, I write books. I don't make a living writing them. but. I think he answered his own question in that all of those hats are worn by a storyteller. And maybe storyteller is is the best name, but there's so many different versions of that. And I don't feel that they're different jobs. They are different tools and different approaches to storytelling. A documentary is told completely differently than a scripted piece of work. Um, and, uh, you know, I think just the realm of what a storyteller is these days in so many different media platforms, it's so varied that it's, you can't lock into any one. So um, I'm giving a confusion of answers to that long well, complimentary okay. question. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then Denver, Denver Bershon also asked, uh, well, they have a few questions here. Uh, what's the best project you've ever written or been attached to as a writer or as a director slash producer, let me throw a writer in there too, I feel like that expands the answer a little bit, I'm a cheat, uh, that has never been made. <laughs> it made my answer easier. <laughs> um, probably, certainly the most notorious and the weirdest would be Clive Barker's The Mummy. Uh, Clive came up, well, it was never made, that's why you haven't heard of it, but Clive came up with an outrageous version of The Mummy that was set in Beverly Hills. And uh, so that's a starting place that you don't find mummy movies uh, taking place. Um, and it was really wild and wooly. And I wrote the script based on his story. And I was going, originally Clive was going to direct it. Then I was going to direct it. And I finished the script. And when we turned it in, I said, Universal Pictures is never going to make this movie. And by golly, I've still never heard from them <laughs> since I turned in the script 30 years ago. <laughs> wow. So you think that that's the one? That's, that's the one probably, that sticks out? It's is, certainly yeah. the most notorious in my life. Wow. <laughs> there have been a lot, though. Yeah. Uh, having worked for and with and interviewed so many successful people, not to mention yourself, of course. Boy, this guy loves the compliments. <laughs> Ask his. He's really buttering you up. <laughs> Have you found that there is a common trait or characteristic? I find that most creative people have a sense of humor. They're smart. They're usually liberal-minded people. People in the arts normally find themselves um, 
they uh, they feel other people's feelings mm -hmm. because that's part of the job is being introspective and being thoughtful and and all that so they tend to lean in social and politically liberal direction uh, that's not true with everybody but I would say it's the majority of artistic people and usually especially people who keep stretching the envelope who keep creating and don't calcify have a success and then just keep trying to replicate that success are questing people they're people who really love to be on top of what's new they they still watch movies they still love movies they go to the movies and and they evolve as as the medium itself evolves all right um so that was the last question sent in but i, I thought to wrap it up i would interject my own question um, you got um, being it being the 35th anniversary of critters 2 which is being celebrated right here at motor city legacy horror convention and film festival in romulus michigan hot oh, wait, dog we're, we're dropping this after the fact it's gonna be too late that was wasted uh, <laughs> um you are argue people argue that you made the fan favorite critters 2 the main course that is the fan favorite amongst most if not all of the critters of fans. critter epics <laughs> yeah the critter saga uh the franchise yeah. uh as the person that made that uh who what do you think it would take to successfully rejuvenate the franchise i feel like there's been some attempts recently and give up no just oh, no give up. <laughs> you know let well enough stand alone you, you don't know? think there's somebody out there that would have well, that magic touch that we've would... talked a lot about franchises oh, okay. before and that i'm not a huge fan of of keeping going okay. back even though i've made a lot of movies early in my career that had numbers in the title um in the case of Critters, I think it's been played out. I, sure, there are great filmmakers who could revive it, I'm sure, if they wanted to, but there are so many Critters movies, there's so many little creature movies. You know, I'm, I'm happy to, to put a wooden stake in its heart. Okay. <laughs> well, thank you, Adam DeFilippi, for filling in for producer Joe Russo, and if you have questions to submit to us that you'd like to ask Mick, that's me. Um, you can send them to our email address at askmickanything at gmail.com and the usual other places that Joe Russo says that I don't remember. So thanks for joining us, everybody, and thank you for your questions. And Adam, thank you so much for helping out. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks, guys. <laughs> That's a wrap. <laughs> cool. Good job, my friend. Thank you for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every Wednesday or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Postmortem with Mick Garris is produced by Mick Garris and Joe Russo. Our sound engineer is Christopher Leon Price. Our announcer is Jeff Gelb. Our graphic designer is John Holland. And our theme was composed and performed by Bill Burney with additional music by John Jasensky. If you're enjoying our show, please take a moment to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening to the Dread Podcast Network.